Something impossible is happening to me. Emotion. Human emotion. It has no application in Anthium. My adept Thomas Newton used these television signals to communicate with his wife, and I am now communicating with you. I'm sending this message to try and explain what's happening to me. I seem to be going through some... Ch Changes. Dust cops fire targeted shots at protesting farmers. In the Netherlands, police used their service guns to shoot farmers who were protesting new environmental regulations. Video evidence showed police shooting at a tractor as it tried to flee from them. Local police claimed that after a stop, to drive into cops and service vehicles during the incident that occurred late on Tuesday at a motorway entrance ramp. A dangerous circumstance developed. They added that the tractor was hit and that three individuals were eventually apprehended after warning shots and targeted gunfire were exchanged. During the encounter, no one was hurt. However, video of the shooting has now surfaced on social media and doesn't seem to depict any ramming attempts. Instead, the video shows two automobiles leaving the area, none of which comes close to colliding with a pedestrian, and police shooting at the second vehicle as it speeds away. Another video, allegedly shot at the same time, shows the cop directing a tractor driver who is parked close to the highway ramp while holding a pistol in his hand and aiming it towards the tractor. In reaction to a police statement, Gideon Van Majeren, an MP with the right-leaning Forum for Democracy Party, commented on the video and added the keywords police aggression and farmers uprising, saying it did not depict anyone in imminent danger. He noted that he had asked for an urgent debate in Parliament and urged officials to explain the apparent disparity as quickly as possible. The National Criminal Investigation Department will open an investigation into the incident since an officer shot their service weapon while performing official duties, local police said. The incident occurred during a surge of anger among Dutch farmers, who have publicly challenged a government plan to reduce pollutant emissions, such as nitrogen oxide and ammonia, by 50% over the course of the next eight years. The revisions are expected to affect the agricultural sector, causing farmers to limit the number of cattle or discontinue operations entirely because fertilizers contain a significant quantity of nitrogen oxide and livestock create ammonia in their urine and feces. Intense protests, including farmer-led blockades at important transportation hubs, have taken place in recent weeks as a result of many people's worry that the reforms will simply force them out of business. The government will not permit farmers to create dangerous situations or intimidate officials, as Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte warned late last month. This sentiment was repeated by police in Heronveen following Tuesday's shooting. Thanks for watching. Please consider subscribing to. Now, the point of me playing these clips is to give some backdrop to. The idea, excuse me, that the idea 
that they want complete control um, over the world. They want complete control over the food. And the only way you can do that is if you take people's abilities to hold government accountable militarily, uh, something like January 6th, not to say that's right or wrong, I'm just pointing out things. So, if you look at gun laws in the Netherlands, where that story, just I just played that story, that's where it's from. In the Netherlands, the possession of all firearms, ammunition, and other weapons is prohibited. It is also forbidden to use weapons. There are some exceptions, but in those cases, you will need a weapons permit. So, now, you can't have guns in the Netherlands. But interestingly enough, the only people that have guns is the government. So... When they tell you, hey, we need you to cut emissions, but we're going to tell you, you can't have, you can, your farmers can't produce as much food, but they're like some of the top producers in Europe. And we're going to continue on with this story. I want to point out some things. Um... In New York, that today they enacted, they pushed forward with more gun restrictions after the Supreme Court ruled on on their uh, former gun restrictions being um, unconstitutional. So let me look if I can pull it up. They have the shooting in Chicago. Chicago, they covered all three channels. Texas, you can carry guns anywhere, basically. Chicago has strict gun laws, but some guy managed to do a mass shooting in Chicago. The next day the government's open, they have this law in New York. Let's see. Let's see. We're going to pull it up. Four days. Okay, we're going to play a piece on what the Supreme Court did 12 days ago in New York. decision by the Supreme Court overturning New York State's guidelines on concealed guns in public. In a 135-page ruling, the High Court struck down the century-old law, claiming it violates constitutional rights. The court was split down ideological lines. The six conservative-leaning justices voting to overturn the law. The three liberal-leaning justices voting to uphold it. We have team coverage for you tonight. Carolyn Gossoff with reaction from supporters of the ruling. Marsha Kramer with reaction from local and state leaders, but we begin with Tony Aiello and how the court came to this ruling. Tony. Maurice, it comes down to this. In most states, to get a carry permit, you have to meet objective criteria. No criminal record, no mental or substance abuse issues. You generally qualify. But New York adds subjective criteria. Do you face special danger that justifies carrying a pistol? The court voted six to three to strike that down. 
After eight years of court battles, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association declared victory. The lawful and legal gun owner of New York State is no longer going to be persecuted by laws that uh, have nothing to do with the safety of the people and are, will do nothing to make the people safer. Oral arguments at the Supreme Court last November made it clear multiple justices were skeptical of New York's pistol permit laws, which required applicants to prove they faced special or unique danger and had proper cause to get a carry permit. Why isn't it good enough to say I live in a violent area and... Um, I want to be able to defend myself. How is that consistent with Samuel the core right to self-defense, which is protected by the Second Amendment? 43 states had less restrictive concealed carry laws than New York, a fact cited by Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote in the majority opinion, because New York issues public carry licenses only when an applicant demonstrates a special need for self-defense, we conclude that the state's licensing regime violates the Constitution. Attorney Philip Hamilton says the court decided you shouldn't have to prove a special need to exercise a constitutional right. Having to show historically, have you had situations where people may have been trying to harm you? It's just going a bit too far, particularly when historically those regulations were not something in U.S. history that were applicable. You had the right to bear arms. And as far as the court interpreted as much today, they found that you know New York's regulatory structure just went well beyond the constitutional protections. This case made for some interesting bedfellows. Conservative icon, retired Judge Michael Ludig, supported New York's pistol permit restrictions as a historically rooted option for reducing the harms of gun violence in public, while the progressive Legal Aid Society wanted the law struck down, saying it embodied arbitrary licensing standards that have inhibited lawful black and brown gun ownership in New York. Here on the East Coast, New Jersey, Maryland, and Massachusetts have gun permit laws similar to the one struck down in New York. All those laws now vulnerable to legal challenges. Christine. All right. All right. So you saw Supreme Court overturn New York. So New York comes back uh, with this. The new gun legislation intended to counter the recent Supreme Court ruling, which allowed people to carry a concealed handgun in New York for personal protection. Sharon Crowley joins us now to break down exactly what this new legislation does. Sharon. Yes, Steve, these new gun laws prohibit carrying concealed weapons in crowded places like Times Square and the subway. It also imposes new restrictions for getting a handgun license, and that includes a review of the applicant's social media. Our state will continue to keep New Yorkers safe from harm, even despite this setback from the Supreme Court. New York Governor Kathy Hochul is signing legislation to strengthen gun laws and bolster restrictions on concealed carry weapons. She called Albany lawmakers back for a special session after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down New York's concealed carry law. The governor and Democrats who control the legislature creating a list of so-called sensitive places where concealed weapons would not be allowed. I believe we have hit that mark and will make New York safer. Weapons would be prohibited in Times Square on public transportation, schools, libraries, daycares, playgrounds, parks, zoos, places of worship, hospitals, and all health care facilities. The ban also applies to government buildings, sporting and entertainment venues, and places where alcohol or cannabis is consumed, and in businesses unless the owner posts a sign allowing concealed guns. 
Getting a concealed carry permit would now require 15 hours of training at a firing range, background checks for buying ammunition, and handgun applicants would also need to provide information from social media accounts dating back three years to flag any dangerous behavior. Sometimes they're telegraphing their intent to cause harm to others. And we saw that in Buffalo. New York State Senators and State Assembly members spent hours debating during this special session. I think it is unconstitutional. I think it will be challenged. Republicans repeatedly objecting, saying these restrictions punish law-abiding gun owners. I think it really is going to criminalize um, people who should not be criminalized. And at the same time, uh, not address the sincere problems with violence that we have in our communities all across the state. Well, the governor and lawmakers also reacting to the Supreme So, you see, that is a response. After the Supreme Court, now they want you, they want to be able to judge you on some criteria that's not set. Oh, look at social media. We don't like it. No gun for you. Now, that covers um, a wide range of... They basically are inquisitors. They're going to say, hey, I like what you said on that day. No gun for you. You could be criticizing them and their governance, and they could determine that is if you criticize the government and your social media or even the Democrats who are the ones passing all this, they can just say, hey, no gun for you which is really sounds crazy to me. So, and then they mentioned Buffalo, like, you know, like the guy, these guys had social media accounts and they were saying they were going, these are like the perfect storm to me. I believe that there are all plants, ops, in the first place. The third one that just happened over the weekend, that was like the perfect storm of full-blown social media followed by uh, scrubbing the internet real-time as people watch. As we look for the information on the shooter, things get scrubbed right in front of our eyes. It was like a perfectly timed play. Something's going on. Like, okay, so, and the reason why I played the Netherlands at first is because I think that plays into a future, a peek into the future of this totalitarian nanny state sort of thing that it seems to be coming down the pipe here. You got Biden over there handing over the health care, our health care, and all that to the World Health Organization, uh, handing over control to these world, these world uh, bodies, and also serve as a distraction. Let's see. I was looking at something else this morning. Let's see. England Prime. Yeah, he's having issues. England, they want this dude. 
This is how it began. Downing Street, dappled light on a sunny afternoon, and a visit from Sajid Javid, the country's now former health minister. Are we good? Not quite. Javid's resignation was followed almost immediately by that of the finance minister, Rishi Sunak, shown here next to Boris Johnson this morning at a glum-looking cabinet meeting before his government started to shake. The latest crisis facing the British Prime Minister centers on what he knew about sexual misconduct allegations against this man, MP Chris Pincher, before appointing him deputy whip. Downing Street first denied Johnson had known, but today that position shifted. I got this uh, complaint. Uh, it was it was something that uh, was... So they over there trying to get to go him out of there in England they're over here in in uh in a Dutch land over here punking the people uh into the farmers into not growing as much food during a global inflationary period and food insecurity time. So it looks like they're slowly trying to work on the American people uh, in certain areas. Uh, certain areas ain't going for that. The Republicans ran, ran ahead uh, of Donald Trump, trying to get rid of Trump, so he can't run again because he basically beat them at their own game, and he's got the Supreme Court. Um, so they're running a conservative, constitutional-looking uh, set of plays out of the Supreme Court. They're about to change the face of the country. So in, du in the Dutch, I thought it was real interesting because I was looking at what people were saying, and people were like... Uh, one okay, one person um, said the Dutch people largely support the farmers. Global food shortages and famine are increasing, and what is the Dutch government doing? Decreasing food production. It is mind-boggling, and over seventy percent of the Dutch people want this government gone. So. That's what's going on there. Here, we got high gas, high inflation. People are not satisfied with the government. Our president, uh, Joe Biden, is low approval. Kamala is the lowest approval rate of any vice president in modern history. And they're pushing forward with a series of initiatives that don't make sense. Now, we're having a series of, uh, let's see, American. I'm doing this on the fly, so let's see. American food. Series of, okay. Food shortages. Let's see. 
Yeah, see, I should have did it straight off a tube. Okay. So the Dutch police, the Dutch is over there trying to institute forced shortages, it seems like. You, under the guise of uh, cutting emissions. Now, the country's so small. I don't know what the hell they're talking about cutting any sort of emissions and how that's going to help. Let's see. shortage okay I'm looking on YouTube alright let's look let's play this this morning the US and the world bracing for food shortages as the war in Ukraine rages on President Biden speaking to NATO leaders in Brussels Thursday said because of sanctions on Russia Food shortages are coming. The price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. The U.S., Canada, and Europe are major wheat producers, but Ukraine and Russia produce about one-third of the world's supply. And less food means higher prices, on top of already high inflation rates. Groceries are already about 8% more expensive than they were last year. And those expenses are not just hurting consumers, but also food banks, like this one in Boston. We used to be able to buy chickens for... 80 cents a pound somewhere in there now it's like a dollar fifty a pound and so that limits our ability to buy more food and distribute more food to the agencies in tennessee the governor is pitching a plan to provide relief to shoppers by suspending the sales tax on groceries for one month let tennesseans keep some of that hard-earned money uh, and do so by suspending the, the, the uh, grocery tax for, for a time. The U.S. is producing less wheat than it used to. About 44 million tons were harvested last season, compared to 50 million three years ago. To help avert a potential worsening crisis, President Biden is urging European leaders to end trade limits on shipping food abroad. We are in the process of working out with our European friends what it would be, what it would take to help alleviate the concerns relative to uh, food shortages. As to why the U.S. is producing less wheat, factors include the drought and farmers switching to more profitable crops. Mona, Andrew. Andrea, thank you. Now, that's one story. Okay. Which... It's funny because he said our European buddies. This is like very telling because, you know, I'm a black guy and we got to deal with black. I mean, I live so America tells Africa to cut Russia off. to stop dealing with Russia. There's an article I saw last week. Okay. Okay. 
Okay, here's something right here. Maybe this got an answer in it. Humanitarian groups have been sounding the alarm about how Russia's war on Ukraine has triggered a global food crisis. Many countries depend on shipments of grains and fertilizer from the war-torn nation. Some African countries were already facing famine-like conditions before this conflict, and now they're being hit particularly hard. It's partly because Russian officials are blocking vital goods at Ukraine's Black Sea ports. Yet some African leaders who have political and economic ties with Russia have not condemned Russia's invasion. Well, today, the African Union chair and Senegalese president, Macky Sall, was in Sochi meeting with Mr. Putin about this very issue. And he says he has high hopes the two can cooperate and resolve this crisis. Julian Moore is a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. He joins me now from Washington. Julian, great to see you. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. I have to say, you know, seeing Macky Sall with President Putin, I mean, it, it gives sort of a big question about whether they, they can find uh, a way forward um, and whether Macky Sall has any sway to try and convince Putin to open up those supply chains. What do you think? Uh, yeah, again, thanks, Eleni, for having me. I, I think so. I think, you know, African governments have not condemned uh, Russia en masse. In fact, subsequently, some African governments have abstained from UN resolutions. Some of them have voted, like Eritrea has voted against them. So because of that, compared to, say, Europe or the United States, um, the representative of the African continent uh, at that level, who is now Makisal, chair of the AU, has some leverage to see if there can be some negotiated settlement to the crisis in Ukraine, because there's only a diplomatic out. There's no way to actually end this militarily. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you mentioned that so many African countries have not condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I guess that brings up the question, is Vladimir Putin really pro-releasing supply and helping African countries? Do you think this is a show of force? Because we have to be honest here. Um, we know Sergei Lavrov has actually mentioned the fact that African countries in the past have been ostracized. They need a bigger voice at the UN table. So it's almost like Russia was going to pull the African card at some point. And do you think that this might be it? Not only that, not only that, a um, very high-ranking uh, Russian official who supposedly has access to Putin has talked about how food crisis in places like Africa would actually, you know, spur uh, uh, some sort of surge in migration uh, coming to Europe. So on the one hand, it seems as if Russia is advocating that Europe is somehow responsible for this. And so it, it's not clear if uh, uh, Macky Sall is going to convince him, but again, Africans uh, comprise at up maybe a fifth of the, the global population, and it makes sense that something happening outside Africa that has such significant impact, African leaders would do what is in their power to attempt to sway which powers can be swayed, who, which individuals can be swayed to be able to do this. So I think it's important that the African leaders are taking this step, and who knows, they might be the ones to be able to push this to where we get some sort of settlement. Yeah. I want to give the audience a sense of what kind of supply and price shocks Africa could experience. You know, we've been talking so much about gasoline prices increasing in the U.S. and inflation increasing in, in other parts of the developed world. But it's actually developing economies that are really going to be experiencing excruciating pain. Yes. So one is we talk about fuel prices, right? So some countries in Africa, like Nigeria, Gabon, Angola, 
might benefit from high prices in, in, in petroleum products, but most of the continent are net importers. So high food, uh, fuel prices is going to have significant impact on them. Now, most Africans, especially sub-Saharan African uh, countries, do not really eat a lot of wheat products, but they eat other grains, especially like rice. Now, because of the de decline in wheat supplies and the pressure on wheat prices, it is beginning to affect other African staples, and that is the issue. So today, there were news and rumors that uh, India was considering curbing rice exports. Vietnam and Thailand were considering um, curbing rice exports, even though the Indians have denied it. This carries significant consequences for the continent because, uh, um, as you noted in your opening, in the eastern part of the continent, there has been, especially in the Horn of Africa, four successive failures of the rains, and it looks as if there's going to be a fifth. So it is on, on both fuel and food prices that we're seeing the impact happen. So it might not directly be wheat, but it is the impact of wheat, uh, the shortage in wheat on other grains that is having such devastating impact on, on the availability and food security across the continent. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're painting a diet. So, <laughs> yeah. So I found a little article that says New York Times, March 3rd. I need to find something newer, but oh well. Um, Africa's largest arms dealer, Russia, has ties to the continent that stretch back to the Cold War and helped most of Putin win rare support over the invasion of Ukraine. So the Af well, some of the Africans, uh, 24 African countries declined to join the resounding vote in the UN denouncing Russian aggression. 16 African countries abstained, seven didn't vote at all, and one, Eritrea, voted against it. Keeping company only with Russia, Belarus, Syria, and North Korea. So the, the Africans are like... Um, no. You know what I'm saying? They're not really rolling with that shit. And for the, you know, there's more countries, of course. I think there's like 50. But a few African countries have condemned Russian aggression as an attack on the international uh, order, notably Kenya and Ghana. Uh, some African nations voted for a UN resolution that announced. Uh, Mr. Putin's sanctions on Wednesday, but deep divisions in the continent's response were apparent. So, it's like half and half. <coughs> Excuse me. So, in Ethiopia, Russian flags flew at a ceremony on Wednesday. That was back in March. We're in July. I don't know. I mean, I think things have changed. So, I mean, so they basically want some of these African places, right, to starve during a time when there's not a lot of water coming out of the sky. 
to back European countries who have done nothing really but a lot of the other ones especially exploit the continent. Now, I'm just watching all this stuff play out. The, uh, it looks like the arrogant and audacity of certain players in this world stage they still haven't really explained <laughs> why is the Ukraine Africa's business? Why is the Ukraine the United States business? Why? Why should everyone starve and pay more money for this crisis? The Ukraine was part of Russia already. So, anyway, they still haven't explained it. Okay. So, I mean, we're dealing with people that, like, don't give a fuck. And seemingly want to disarm people. It seems like some, like, they want to control everything. They want the people to keep voting on this gun stuff. And it's funny how this stuff didn't happen under Trump. There weren't a whole bunch of mass shootings. It's like now, the Dem- every time the Democrats, the police start killing black people on TV again, the, man, something ain't right. And this is something that I want to look at in further episodes. This is just basically a top of my head random show. So, and like I wanted to point out with the whole uh, Netherlands thing, they don't have guns. So the police, can, yeah, can take shots at people. What are they shooting at the people for? For exercising their displeasure with the government. Now, meanwhile, we have this going. Carolyn Bryant should be indicted in the role in the kidnapping of Emmett Till. Now, we're going to get into that. Hold on, I'm going to start. And then we're going to, let's see, 93... Let's see, year of, what was it, Nazi? Now look. Okay. Here we go, right here. Let's do this. Trying to get someone to read it out so you can hear it. I guess he will. Maybe they talk about this. 
There's no expiry date on justice. That's what lawyer Thomas Walter tells those who ask him about the prosecution of the last surviving Nazis. He's representing the descendants of the victims of the Holocaust at the trial of a 100-year-old man known only as Joseph S. In the dock for his role in the murder of thousands of people more than 70 years ago. This trial is the trial of belated justice. It's also late because German justice has for decades neglected the trials of former Nazis. And it was not interested in prosecuting the criminals. The man facing charges was a guard at Sachsenhausen outside of Berlin. Opened in 1936. See, look. They out here putting these dudes in jail. They're 93, bro. Let's see. Here, right here. It's funny how they, I'm going to read it. Fuck it. A 101-year-old former Nazi guard sentenced for role in concentration camp murder. 101. <laughs> but I think it's really important that my generation and the future generation has... There will no longer be direct witnesses uh, of this history that we keep on we keep on uh, this memory and I think this trial um, as my father said there has been a, a huge work um, a huge memory work huge work on what happened in this camp that was almost forgotten although in the suburbs of Saxon of uh, Berlin sorry and I think it's really like the, the message we wanted to, to give with my father today is that the important thing here today was that he was proven guilty. Yeah, they got a hundred and one year old Nazi guards, right? They're rolling them out, putting these fools in jail. Like this one, six years ago. A former Auschwitz guard was convicted on 300,000 counts of accessory to murder on Wednesday. The state court in the northern German city of Lüneburg gave 94-year-old Oskar Groening a four-year sentence. During his trial, Groening testified that he guarded prisoners' baggage after they arrived at Auschwitz and collected money stolen from them. Prosecutors said that amounted to helping the death camp function. The charges against Groening related to a period between May and July 1944, when hundreds of thousands of Jews from Hungary were brought to the Auschwitz-Birkenau complex in Nazi-occupied Poland. Most were immediately gassed to death. Some 60 Holocaust survivors or their relatives joined the prosecution as Copeland. Now, see, they believe, no matter how long, that somebody should pay for their crimes. But here in the United States, this right here. It has been nearly 67 years since Emmett Till was abducted, tortured, and lynched in Mississippi. After the 14-year-old black boy from Chicago, was who was visiting family in Mississippi, was accused of making advances at a white woman. In an amazing discovery last week, a team searching a Mississippi courthouse basement for evidence in the case uncovered an unserved 1955 arrest warrant charging that same woman for Till's kidnapping. Included in that team were relatives of Till. They're now calling for the woman, Carolyn Bryant Donham, now in her 80s, to be arrested. Donham was married to one of the two white men who were tried and acquitted for Till's brutal murder, shockingly, by an all-white jury. Maybe not so shockingly, given this country's history. They later confessed to the killing. The arrest warrant against Donham was publicized 
at the time. But get this, the sheriff told reporters that he did not want to, quote, bother Ms. Bryant since she had two young children to care for. Ah, American history. With me now is Deborah Watts, Emmett Till's cousin and co-founder of the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation. She was part of the team that discovered the warrant. Thank you so much for being here, Ms. Watts. I want to take you back to that discovery. What What were you all looking for in that courthouse, and how did you come upon this incredible... Uh, document. Well, I'll just tell you, it was a team of about five of us, and um, this was the second opportunity to search. There was a team that went towards the end of March after we had a meeting with the Department of Justice, the FBI investigator, and the DA Richardson. And so at that time, they told us there was nothing else that they could do. And we knew all along that this warrant for Carolyn Bryant's arrest was never served. Keith Beauchamp, who is a award-winning filmmaker and was responsible for the investigation that reopened the case in 2004, made sure that we understood that. And so a collective group of us went to the courthouse in LaFleur County, uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, to search for that warrant. And we knew that one, that one bit of evidence had never been served, and we wanted to find it amongst other things that we thought might be there. But we did find it, and we are hoping that this leads to the um, at least the execution of the warrant to Carolyn Bryant Dunham, charging her in the kidnapping and murder of Emmett Lewis Till, because she's culpable in that. Without malice, without hate, or without vengeance, we want justice served. And so we were just excited, ecstatic, happy, very emotional at the time when we found it in the lower level of the, the four county uh, courthouse area in the booth yeah. there. And Carolyn uh, Brian um, Donham, she, she, you know, the book, The Blood of Emmett Till, which a lot of, which brought a lot of people, younger people um, to this story that only knew about it from, you know, history class, if it's illegal to teach in their state. Um, that in that book, Carolyn Bryant Donham, she actually gave an interview to that author, and then she took back her ad, her previous admissions that she lied about your cousin about Emmett Till. Um, do you want her arrested and put under oath to get her to under oath say what she did? Well, we think the evidence speaks for itself, and we think that the sheriff needs to serve that warrant to Carolyn Bryant. The DA needs to impale a, or impanel, excuse me, a grand jury. And then they need to bring Carolyn in to be a part of that and indict her being culpable in the murder. Yeah. And first of all, the kidnapping of Emmett Lewis Till. Absolutely. But uh, Carolyn definitely was there. I mean, the FBI investigation uh, and other reports and the admission by Dale Killinger, who was the FBI investigator at the time, he mm-hmm. received an admission from that two other young men had been brought to her to identify them. And of course, we know what happened with Emmett. Those two other young men were accosted. They were thrown out, beat up. Some of them were beat up. And yeah. But Emmett, what happened to Emmett? He yeah. was kidnapped and murdered later. So there yeah. had to be an identification. Ryan could be the only person that would do that. And in fact, in the documents that we found, there was an affidavit for her arrest as well. Mm-hmm. Also, the ad of Mose Wright, who identified her. He had to. Right. So they talked to him. And this kidnapping uh, took place, of course, uh, Joy, before the murder. So yeah. 
justice needs yeah. to be served. It's time, and Carolyn needs to be brought uh, to justice. I, I just want to... Yeah. So, this is crazy. Because... <laughs> We as black people, some a lot of listeners are black, some not, you know. But we as black people in the hood, we know, especially under mass incarceration, period, that if you got a warrant, they don't give a damn how old that damn warrant is. They will bring you to jail. They do, I mean, regardless of race, they do this all the time. They grab people off of DNA 20, 30 years down the road. Um, they call it unsolved murders. For, but for some reason, let's see. They can't grab this woman For what she did. Cold case. They call them cold cases. They got them all. Google, uh, YouTube it. You know what I'm saying? Unsolved. Cold case. Right here. DNA match. 23. That she needed to go home and. Uh... I mean right here. 23 year old Deborah Shepard. A senior at Southern Illinois University had returned to her apartment for the night to get ready for a family visit the next day for the Easter holiday. Deborah's boyfriend, Randy, asked her to go see a movie, but in anticipation of her parents and sisters coming down, she decided she needed to go home and uh, clean up the place. If not for Deborah's uh, father demanding second autopsy, Randy none of these crimes would have been solved. But he decided to stop in and see Deborah just to talk to her briefly. He noticed I mean, look at this. the love he has. Aldred Wallace, crime scene. Very similar. Point of entry into the residence. Both all fluid that act. For Shepard, does that mean anything to you? We know you did it. Oh, hold on. I got got the wrong person. The next day, I had a voicemail, and it was Lieutenant Schuler from the Big Muddy Correctional Center saying that. Tim wanted us to come back. He wanted to confess. Just simply, did you kill Deborah Shepard? Yes. It was not. Okay. <laughs> now, that was back in, what year was that? Look at the transcript. Deborah Shepard. They don't even say what year it was. But they, see what I'm saying? They can't get the murder of a 12-year-old. Because what it represents, what it represents in the Joe Biden Justice Department who said, if you ain't black, you ain't black if you don't vote for Joe. But his Justice Department, what do they do? Nothing. If there's a warrant like this, they should immediately pick this case up if the sheriff didn't pick it up. When you get in trouble and and the feds feel like they got teeth, they had an FBI file on this lady that killed Emmett. They had all the information, but they refused to do anything. <laughs> 
And Joe Biden's Justice Department refuses to do anything for black people. He can do crime bills for LGBTQ. He can do crime bills for Asians. But he can't do, they can't bring in one person who got a warrant. (laughs) Nothing. They can't do anything. And this is where we're at. Their whole focus is on what? Disarming the population. Making it so black people don't have equal access to firearms. Oh, you were twerking on your social media? That's dangerous. No gun for you. That's what's going on right now. Uh, let's just let's let's cut the food supply. Strange happenings in the food supply. So we're gonna tie it all up in subsequent podcasts. I'll get Dev Chef on here. And we'll tie some of this stuff up, but I don't want to start the new season with just a little loose talk. So, see y'all later.